Good morning, church. The enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy, but he will not have the last say. Amen. He will face the consequences of his actions, and that is the hope that we can hold on to. Have you been blessed by this series so far? Have you been challenged? It's been a little bit uncomfortable, hasn't it? But it's been good. So we've been journeying through the book of Habakkuk over the past few weeks, and I hope that as we've been breaking down these passages that you've been learning some things from it, that you've been able to understand what is going on in these passages of scripture. And I hope that you've also been fascinated to see how this ancient writing, this Old Testament writing, still holds truth for us today. That it is still relevant in our day and age. And that Habakkuk's concerns about the state of his nation, his writing, sounds very much like something that someone today could have written. So a quick recap of what we have covered so far. In part one, we saw that Habakkuk cried out to God about the state of his nation, about how corrupt and violent it had become. And he questioned whether God was going to do something about it. Then in part two, we saw that God answered Habakkuk's complaint and that it was an unexpected answer. That God told him that he was aware of the situation and that he was planning to deal with the evil in Judah, but that plan involved raising up an even more violent nation to bring judgment upon them. Now, of course, that doesn't sound great. And it didn't make much sense to Habakkuk. So once again, he approached God with some questions and we saw that last week in part three, where Habakkuk had a difficult conversation with God where he raised these concerns about how God was planning to deal with the evil and wickedness. Essentially, he came to God a second time and he says, listen God, I don't like your plan. I don't like it. I don't like what you're planning on doing. I think your method is not for me. What's that about? And I think as we've been going through this series, I'm sure that we have all been able to think of moments in our lives where we have felt like Habakkuk, where we have wrestled with questions about doubt, where we have cried out to God, wondering if he was listening to us. Maybe he had answered our prayers, but it was in a way that we had not expected or liked, or maybe we are still waiting for an answer. Times when we have questioned God about why he did things that way rather than the way that we would have preferred. Where it seems like the situation that we're praying about only seems to be getting worse. It doesn't make sense. And we wonder why we have to go through that. There's a quote from the Lord of the Rings which fits quite well with what we've been covering. It's a moment where Frodo says, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. To which Gandalf replied, so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what we do with the time that is given to us. Now I'm pretty sure that Habakkuk felt like Frodo. When God gave him that answer of what he was going to do, he probably wished that he had never heard it. He wished that it was not going to happen. But Gandalf's reply is true, isn't it? All those who live to see such times feel that way. 
today, we probably feel the same way. We feel that we wish we didn't have to live in the corruption, in the violence, in the state of the world. We wish that we didn't have to witness the, the pain around us, the injustice. We wish that we didn't have to deal with the state of our society and these ridiculous ideas that are being pushed on us. I wish that the wars, violence, crime, corruption, and every other bad thing didn't happen. When we bring it closer to home, I wish I didn't get that text message. I wish that person had not said whatever it was they said. I wish I didn't get that doctor's report. I wish the church had not been broken into and things gotten stolen. I wish you fill in the blank did not happen to me. But we don't get to decide whether we experience these things or not. But we do have a choice about how we respond to it, how we deal with it, how we move through it. We might not be able to change our external circumstances, but we can change and choose how to respond to it and how we view it. This is the time that we are living in. This is the situation that we are in. So what are we going to do about it? Will we allow it to weigh us down and break our spirits? Or will we seek God's heart and his vision on all of this? So Habakkuk laid out his questions and he ended it with the statement in verse one of chapter two. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. He asked his questions and now he was waiting expectantly for God to answer. And as we'll see today, God answered him. But again, it wasn't quite the way he expected but it was in a way that changed Habakkuk's perspective on the situation to give him what we also need, clear vision. See, we're all a little bit vision impaired. Now, some of you, I can see you wear glasses. I also wear glasses sometimes, but that's not the vision impaired I'm talking about. All of us, whether you wear glasses or not, are a little bit vision impaired, and I'm talking about in the spiritual. All of us need to have our spiritual eyes, our spiritual vision to be adjusted. See, sometimes we, not sometimes, actually oftentimes, we focus on the wrong thing. And so we need some adjustment. If we hold something up too close to our face, my hand, if I look at my hand like this, it's blurry. If you hold it up too close, if you're looking too closely at it, your vision is blurry. But as soon as I start to pull it away a little bit, I change my perspective. Suddenly I can see it clearly. And so sometimes, in the physical and the spiritual, we're focusing on the wrong thing. We're looking too closely at the wrong thing. And our vision needs, our perspective needs to be adjusted so that our vision can be clear. And so we're going to see that Habakkuk's vision needed to be adjusted. His second complaint that he was asking God was why he was tolerating this evil. And not just tolerating evil, but using evil to deal with evil. So he was looking at God's first response and he didn't quite understand why God was doing it that way. And so he wrestled with these questions. He was focused on the injustices around him. 
And as we read in the beginning of God's second response, it's important that we notice this, that God answers him, but he doesn't answer the question that Habakkuk asked. Remember, essentially Habakkuk's question is, why are you doing this? Why, God? But we're going to see that in his response, God doesn't tell him why. Instead, he shifts perspective from the why to what is truly important. So let's read in chapter two, verses two to four. Then the Lord said to me, write my answer plainly on tablets so that a runner can carry the correct message to others. This vision is for a future time. It describes the end and it will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently, for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. Look at the proud, they trust in themselves and their lives are crooked, but the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. Now before I get into the rest of what God says, what he says is going to happen, I want to break down these first three verses because in this short passage, there is so much that we can unpack and take from it. So I just briefly wanna break it down. So let's start with verse two. God's answer starts with an instruction. Write my answer plainly on tablets so that a runner can carry the correct message to others. Write the information that I am about to give you. Make it clear, make it understandable so that all who read it can understand. What God was going to tell Habakkuk was important. It needed to be written down to last, to be passed down. In other words, share what I'm about to tell you. Let others know, share the vision. You are given this truth, make it known to the rest. There's a lesson in this for us. We have been given the truth. You have been given the truth. We have it in the scriptures. We have it in the revelation of the Holy Spirit that reveals to us what scripture is saying. You have been given the truth. Don't keep it to yourself. Share it. Share that truth with others. Don't just keep it between you and God. You know how often we hear people say, oh yeah, my faith is between me and the Lord. It's ours. Share your faith. We should share the truth and share it clearly with others. Then he goes on to say, this vision is for a future time. It describes the end and it will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently, for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. So what God was about to tell him, what he was about to explain, was for a future time. Not, this is what I'm gonna do right now but this is what is going to happen in a future time. So he answers unexpectedly. Instead of answering why, he's saying, here's what I'm gonna do in the future. After the Babylonians have attacked and taken the nation of Judah captive. You're still gonna go through that, but afterwards, here's what I'm gonna do. It describes the end, the end of their captivity, the end of the Babylonians, but not only this, if we look carefully at what he goes on to say, we will notice that there is a parallel in what happened at the end of the covenant that they were living in when Jesus instituted a new covenant. So at the end 
of this old covenant, there's a parallel to what God says will happen. And in particular, when we look at what is going to happen, we also see parallels of what will happen at the end when God brings his final judgment. So this isn't a, here's what I'm gonna do to the Babylonians only, but it's a warning of what is coming, particularly to those who live immoral, wicked, cruel, corrupt, and sinful lives. It is a warning to all who read it. Remember, as I said in in part two, there are consequences to our actions. And as a just God, he will hold us accountable for our choices and our actions. So God is saying, here's what's going to happen. And it will happen. It might be delayed because it won't happen when you want it to, but it will happen. It will be right on time. We see this often in scripture, don't we? We read things and and we see, but God took his sweet time in making it happen. But what he said would happen, happened. God's promised son to Abraham, that took time. The fruition of Joseph's dreams, that took time. The Israelites getting to the promised land, that took time. Their restoration out of exile and captivity, that took time. The arrival of the promised Messiah, that took time. Our waiting for the second coming of Jesus, that's taking time. But all of these events, they seemed to be delayed. They seemed slow in coming, but really, they were right on time. They weren't a moment early or a moment late. It happened when God wanted it to happen, in his time. Some translations of this verse say, for the revelation awaits an appointed time. Appointed time. Here's the thing about God's appointed time. It's gonna happen. You cannot stop it. There's a saying that puts it this way. When it's not God's timing, it cannot be forced. When it is God's timing, it cannot be stopped. Another author wrote wrote it this way. When it's the appointed time, There's nothing you or anyone else can do to speed it up or slow it down. It's going to happen and happen on God's timetable. Until then, there's nothing you can do but wait and be ready. Wait and be ready. It will happen at God's appointed time. No one can make it happen sooner and no one can stop it from happening. It will happen. So at the appointed time, God will deliver. At the appointed time, God will respond. At the appointed time, he will do his perfect will at the appointed time. So until then, wait patiently, for it will surely take place and it will not be delayed. But that's not what we wanna hear. No one likes to wait. Who likes to wait, truthfully? No one likes to wait, especially now more than ever in the day and age we live in, Waiting feels like a curse, because when we want it, we want it now. But waiting is important because it teaches us to rest in the Lord, to trust in Him, to wait on His timing because He knows best, and to find peace in knowing that God is in control. See, waiting is just another tool that God uses to draw us close to Him, to draw us nearer, And yes, I understand that waiting can be frustrating, 
but waiting can also be transformative. Waiting may be, tra- may be frustrating, but it is transformative if you go through the process of the waiting. If you allow God to do what he is wanting to do in our lives in our waiting seasons. It's transforming because waiting requires us to have faith in him. We need to trust that his timing is right and that it won't be delayed. And so if you're getting frustrated in your waiting, don't try to get ahead of God. Sometimes we we try to do that. And we see it in scripture. There's enough evidence in scripture that that is a bad idea because every time people try to get ahead of God and try to make it happen, trouble came. We're still living with the consequences of some of those trying to get ahead of God and make it happen. So trust that if God said that he will do it, he will do it. If he said it, it will happen. Just trust that at the appointed time, it will take place. So he's saying that justice will take place, the justice that God is going to explain in the coming verses. He's saying to Habakkuk, it might not happen when you want it to happen. You're probably not even gonna see it happen, but it will happen. It will happen at my appointed time, so be aware of it, wait, and be ready. He goes on to say, look at the proud. They trust in themselves and their lives are crooked, but the righteous, will live by their faithfulness to God. Here's where God adjusts Habakkuk's focus by pointing out something that is so important. See, it's not just Habakkuk's focus that's being adjusted here, it's ours as well, so pay attention to this. The proud trust in their own actions and their own decisions, and because of this, they live in sin. But the righteous people, they live by their faithfulness. And I like the way that the New Living Translation uh, puts it because it says, it emphasizes that it's not just faithfulness, it's faithfulness to God. The righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. See, this part of, of of this verse, this passage of scripture, I'm pretty sure you've all heard at some point. It's a well known verse, and it is quoted three times in the New Testament. We see it in Galatians, in Romans, and in Hebrews. And if you've been in church long enough, if you've been around for a while, you would have heard it and you will know it. The righteous shall live by faith. It's one of those givens that as a believer, you know that the righteous will live by faith. But here's the thing, it's not just by faith. Like our faith in God, I believe I have faith. No, it is our faithfulness to him being faithful to his word, faithful to his instruction, faithful in living in a way that honors him. It's not I have faith, but I am living faithfully to God, living a life that shows it. The way that I thought best describes this, and I apologize if this analogy hits close to home for somebody, but it is the best way to describe it. Because often God uses marriage to teach us things about his relationship with us as the church, amen? So if someone in a marriage has an affair, if they cheat, it's not because they stop believing that that person is their spouse. It's not because they stop believing that they're married, but it was a choice and an action taken outside of faithfulness. They were unfaithful to their spouse. They made a choice to turn their back 
on the covenant they made in marriage. A righteous husband and a righteous wife live in faithfulness to each other. They honor the covenant that they have made to one another. And the decisions that they make, the way they live their lives, is in faithfulness to each other. Faithfulness to that covenant, to that promise. And in the same way, we are considered righteous if we live faithfully to God, honoring Him, living in His will. The righteous shall live by their faithfulness to God. It's not just faith. It's faithfulness, an outward expression, living out that promise of, Lord, I will be faithful to you. I will honor you. The righteous remain faithful to God. And here's the key thing. It goes for relationships, but it goes particularly right here in our faith with God. They remain faithful even when they don't feel like it because they choose Faithfulness is a choice. I will remain faithful because I have made a promise. I choose to live faithfully. So God was telling her back, don't get caught up focusing on the injustice around you. Pointing out all the wickedness in the lives of the people around you, but rather focus on living faithfully. Comes back to stop worrying about what others are doing. Look at your own life, how are you living? Don't get caught up in looking at the wickedness and the sin around us, all the bad things happening. How are you living your life? Are you living faithfully? Are you remaining faithful to God? Because whether things are going well or things are going terribly, at the end of the day, that is what truly matters. If you are living faithfully to God. See, the nation was going to be punished, not because they had stopped believing, but because a majority of them were living unfaithfully. They had turned their back on God, turned their back on the covenant that they had with him. And essentially they had an affair because they were getting involved in rituals of pagan religions. They were no longer faithful to the one they had made a covenant with. But there were some people in the nation who were still living faithfully and they managed to live out their days somewhat comfortably in the middle of their exile in a foreign land because they remained faithful. They chose to remain faithful. We read that in Jeremiah's prophecy in chapter 29 where he told them, be faithful to the Lord. Live peaceably in this, in this exile. Do your best with where you are. Live faithfully. A great example is Daniel. He was part of the group that was taken into exile, so he was taken from his homeland, from his nation, from his culture, and he was taken with to, to the Babylonians. And he was living in their culture, in their nation. There was a lot of pressure to live their way, to follow their, their ways, their rituals, to bow down to man. But Daniel remained faithful. He is a good example of someone who is righteous because he remained faithful to his God. He did not allow his captivity and the pressures of that new place to make him unfaithful. Sometimes that's our excuse. It's too difficult to say no to the ways of the world. Everybody else is doing it. Everyone around me is doing it. It'd be so much easier to just give in and be like everybody else. But we are called to faithfulness, to remain faithful even when it's difficult. 
And in Daniel's situation, God actually elevated him in this foreign land, in this corrupt land, and used him for good because he remained faithful. So clear vision, it's not about focusing on the situation, on the evil, the wickedness, the injustice, it's about focusing on God, on who he is, on what he says, and remaining faithful to him. Now in the next 16 verses, God gives the vision of what will happen, the justice that will take place. So I hope you're not in a hurry to get home. We're going to break down all 16 verses, word for word. I'm not that mean. (laughs) I'm not going to read the entire passage, but I I really want to encourage you to go home and read it. Whether it's this afternoon after lunch or tomorrow morning, just sometime, take a moment and read the entirety of chapter two. See what God is saying, the justice that he will bring. Read it for yourself. Spend some time asking God to, to speak to you through it. But essentially what God goes on to describe is the wickedness that the Babylonians have been living out, what they have been doing. And then it goes on to explain the punishment that they will receive because of it. The New King James Version titles that section, Woe to the Wicked, because you'll see it's a list of woes. Now depending which version you read, it will either say woe to or sorrows. Point is it's not a good thing. And so we could call these the consequences or the curses of unfaithfulness. God describes the sinful behavior that leads to sorrow. The behavior that in the moment might feel good. The behavior that in the moment might feel like you are on top. You have power, you have position, you have wealth, things are going great, you have it all figured out. But it's behavior that at the end of the day you will find out is empty and worthless and it did not protect or save you. It's a good picture of what you sow, you shall reap. And so the Babylonians sowed destruction, violence, greed, self-reliance, shame, and idolatry. But at the appointed time, they were going to find out how empty and worthless all of that was. That they had nothing to save them, nothing to protect them, and that all those things that they had chased after, all those things that they had destroyed and killed and been corrupt over, that was the cause of their ultimate sorrow and destruction. So essentially what we read in those 16 verses is this, woe to the Babylonians. Woe to the Babylonians for their excessive greed in in conquest. Remember, they were going around just conquering nation, destroying nation, collecting, just wiping out greed and conquest. Woe to the Babylonians for relying on treasure and wealth for protection. Woe to the Babylonians for their violence, injustice, and bloodshed. Woe to the Babylonians for dishonoring and shaming their neighbors. Woe to the Babylonians for their idolatry. God is laying out their wickedness, but not only that, He's also laying out their future punishment. He's saying justice will be served. What you Babylonians have sowed, you shall reap. The arrogant and the greedy will be taunted by their captives, taunted because they are getting what they they deserve. Those who plunder will be plundered and left with nothing. Those who get wealth unjustly are actually forfeiting their lives. 
Those who build with violence build in vain, and these earthly riches will turn to ash. Those who use power to abuse and shame will in turn be disgraced, and those who turn to idols for help will find no help at all. In his response, God doesn't tell Habakkuk why he is going to use the Babylonians, but he does tell him that the wickedness of the Babylonians will not go unpunished. Wickedness will not go unpunished. And as we've gone through these two chapters, we've seen that God welcomes our honesty. And we like that part. We like being told, you can go to God with your questions. You can go to God with your doubts. You can wrestle it out with him. You can let it out. You can explain your frustrations. Have it out with God. God welcomes it. He's not afraid of it. He accepts it. He wants you to come to him. But here's a bigger question for us to answer in this book study. Do we welcome his honesty? Do we welcome his honest answers? Do we welcome his truths? As we've seen, they can be uncomfortable, they can be painful, and they might not be what we want to hear. But are we willing to accept it anyway because he is God? He knows what's best and because we are choosing to live faithfully. God welcomes our honesty. He welcomes our questions. But if we are going to go to him with our questions and be honest with him, we need to be prepared to say, God, here it is. But I will welcome your honesty and I will welcome your answers, whether they are what I want or not, whether I like to hear it or not. It's a two-way street. We can be honest, but we have to be willing to accept honesty as well. But we struggle to accept that. And sometimes we wrestle with that, with wanting to accept the truth, wanting to accept the answers. We may not want to accept that these woes aren't just for the Babylonians, that what we are seeing is God's just response to sin, and that it applies to everybody. It applies to us. It's not just for the Babylonians. It wasn't just for them. God was pointing out something particular there, but the principle stands the same. God is just and sin will be punished. Now, we might not be living wicked lives like the Babylonians. We might not be going around plundering our neighbors, committing murders, being corrupt, enjoying violence, or actively worshiping idols. At least I hope none of us are participating in any of this. But there is a warning here for us too. So as we think about our life, be honest with yourself and be honest with God. Have you been arrogant? Have you been greedy? Have you perhaps placed higher value in your position and your possessions than you ought to? Have you maybe made some business decisions that were not quite above board? Maybe you shamed or ridiculed someone and thought it was funny. Maybe you're idolizing something or someone in a way that has become an idol in your life, whether you realize it or not. And that thing is taking the place of God's number one spot in your life. You see, we all have a tendency towards sin. But we comfort ourselves when we compare our sins to other sins. My sin's not that bad. It's a small sin. 
What I'm doing is not as bad as what that person's doing. Have you seen what they did? Have you seen the size of their sin? Mine's a small one. It's little. It's not, it's not too big. But to God, sin is sin. Do not comfort yourself into thinking you can get away with it because it's a little sin. That is how we start to compromise in our faith and we allow lies of the enemy to seep into our lives and to allow us to accept things that we should not be accepting. Sin will not go unpunished. So what is it that you are sowing? What is it that you are going to reap? Are you living your life faithfully to God? Or have you turned your back a little bit and started indulging in behaviors that don't honor God? So yes, sin has consequences. And the Judeans were about to face theirs. But what they eventually realized, and it's what we must realize, is that God was calling them back to him. God is calling you back to him. If you have stepped back a little bit, if you have maybe been making some choices that have separated you a little bit from him, yes, there are consequences to our actions, but God is saying, come back to me. Come back to me. God is calling us to him. Come back to a faithful life, to faithfulness to him. The righteous shall live by their faithfulness to God. And when we are living righteously, we learn to interpret whatever happens around us, whatever happens in life, through a lens of God's faithfulness. Because in living faithfully to God, we see how he has been and he will be faithful to us. And because of that, we can see life a little differently. We adjust our focus from our problems and our troubles to the one who truly matters. When, when we adjust our focus to the one who truly matters, then we can see what he is ultimately doing. When we adjust our focus, our vision clears up. And so what we learn from this part of, of, of Habakkuk, verses two to 20, is that when we have clear vision, when we have adjusted our focus to what is important, when we have clear vision, we can wait patiently. When we have clear vision, we can live faithfully. And when we have clear vision, we can trust what God is doing. We can trust what he is doing even if we don't understand it in the moment. And right at the end of this passage, in verse 20, God's answer ends with this statement. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. See, this verse is in contrast to the last woe that is mentioned about the lifeless idols that the Babylonians worshipped. And the Africa Bible commentary says this about it. The final woe relates to the idolatry of the Babylonians. They are guilty of willful self-delusion when it comes to their gods, trusting them even though they know that these images are lifeless stone and are incapable of giving them any guidance. What a contrast between these dumb idols and the sovereignty and transcendence of the true God. He can indeed speak and it is all his creation that is reduced to silence before him. When people worship idols, they are worshiping a lifeless thing that cannot answer them. 
but we worship a sovereign God. And when we stand before him, when we are in his presence, when we see his awe and wonder, we are reduced to humility and being speechless. We fall silent before him because words fail us. We fall humbly at his feet and we worship. The end of this chapter is appropriate humility and worship before God. So when we wrestle with our doubts, when we allow our doubts to draw us closer to God, rather than away, when we take our questions to him, I pray that we will find that our faith will begin to grow. That we will move out of a life of doubt and into a life of faith, which then results in a life of appropriate praise and worship and adoration. And as we'll see next week, Habakkuk didn't let his doubts separate him from God, nor did he allow these uncomfortable answers that God gave him to push him away from him. But instead, he drew closer, he held on, he remained faithful, and he praised God because he understood that God is worthy of his worship even if his circumstances make him feel otherwise. He humbled himself before the Lord in humility and worship. So as we wait on the Lord for answered prayers, as we trust him to work in his time, may we approach him in humility, in reverence and worship as we live lives faithful to him and allow him to shift our perspective so that we can also have clear vision, amen? I'm gonna ask the ushers to hand out the communion cups. Uh, we're closing today by taking a moment to have communion. And as I mentioned earlier, that in these woes that God speaks about, there's a parallel to what happened after Jesus made the new covenant. So remember, at the last supper with his disciples, Jesus declared the new covenant. Luke 22, verses 19 to 20 says, and he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given to you, do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. See here, Jesus was speaking of his death about what was about to happen. And he was saying that through his death and resurrection, a new covenant would be made. We would no longer have to make sacrifices to be forgiven, to atone for our sins. Jesus was the sacrifice on our behalf. He took it upon himself. We are forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. He took upon himself our sin and our shame. Sorry, can I get a cup please? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, he took upon himself our sin and our shame. So chapter two, verse 16 in Habakkuk says the following. But soon it will be your turn to be disgraced. Come, drink and be exposed. Drink from the cup of the Lord's judgment and all your glory will be turned to shame. 
When we read this with the cross in mind, we see how Jesus stepped in and drank from the cup of the Lord's judgment in our place. Jesus, in all his glory, stepped down and on that cross was exposed, disgraced, and shamed. He took that shame in our place. He bore the weight of our punishment so that through faith we could be saved and live a life in faithfulness to him. So as we take communion this morning, we're looking back at what Jesus did on the cross. We're remembering what he did. We're remembering that he drank from the cup of judgment for me, for you. He, in all his glory, bore shame and disgrace. But we're not only looking back, we are also looking forward. We are looking forward with hope and joy that at, in his appointed time, one day we will share, okay, I'm gonna throw it on the ground. One day in his appointed time, we will share in communion with Jesus, in his kingdom, fully restored. So keep that in mind as you take communion this morning. And thank him for what he has done. Thank him that because of his sacrifice, we have been shown grace. We don't have to face shame and disgrace in the same way. We can be forgiven, but we have to live a life in faithfulness to him. So we take the bread this morning and we remember that this is a symbol of Christ's body that was given for us, that it was broken for us. And so we take that in remembrance of him. And then we take the cup, which is a symbol of his blood that was poured out. A symbol of the new covenant that Jesus made with us, that we don't need to make sacrifices. We don't live under the law, we live in grace. His blood that was poured out to wash you, to make you clean. And so we take of the cup, in remembrance of him. And as scripture says, every time we eat the bread and take of the cup, we are announcing the Lord's death until he comes. We're remembering, but we're waiting expectantly for his appointed time when we can share in this meal with him together. So Father, we want to thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for drinking of the cup of the Lord's judgment. Jesus, that you did that in our place so that we would not have to face shame and disgrace and dishonor. But you bore the weight of our sin. And Father, I pray that we will live a life not just of faith, but a life of faithfulness. 
that every day we will choose, whether we feel like it or not, whether things are going well or things are not going well, whether what you are doing in our lives is comfortable or not, Lord, that we will choose to be faithful to you and to no one else. We will not submit to the ideas of the world. We will not compromise our faith, but we will live faithful to you in a way that honors you, in a way that honors this covenant that we have made with you. Father, I pray that as we come before you with our questions, with our doubts, as we are honest with you about the things that are burdening us, the things that are confusing us, the things that are frustrating us, Lord, the things that are just weighing us down, I pray, Father, that as we are honest with you and we lay it all before you, that our hearts will be open to receive your honesty, that we will accept your truth, whether it's comfortable or not. Father, I pray that you will open our eyes to see the areas in our lives where we are compromising, where we might be living unjustly, where we might be entertaining sin. And I pray, Father, that you will help us to correct that. Yes, we may stumble and fall, but Lord, I pray that we will not use your grace and your forgiveness as an excuse to behave however we want. But I pray, Lord, that when we do stumble, that we will get back up and focus on living faithfully to you. May we seek your heart above our own desires, Lord. Seek your will above our own. And so we thank you, Lord, that the truths in scripture, no matter how old they are, still hold truth for us today. And I pray, Lord, that as we read these scriptures, as we think about what has been said here this morning, what your word says, Lord, that you will reveal to us where we need to align our lives. That you will continue to speak to us in your word and that you will challenge us so that we can become more and more righteous, that we can become more and more like the people, the men and women that you have created us to be. And I pray, Father, that we will not hold these truths to ourselves, but that you will give us the courage to share your truth, your love, your light with the people around us. We wanna give you all honor and praise this morning, Lord. And we know that when we see you for who you truly are, all we can do is worship and praise you and humble ourselves before you. So Father, may you take us out into this week. May you bless us and keep us, have your protection upon us, that you will guide us in all we do, Lord, so that we can honor you every single day of our lives. We give you all honor and praise. Amen. Amen. May we go out and live faithfully to God with a clear vision of who he is and his faithfulness in our lives. Don't just live by faith. Love in faithfulness, amen. Be blessed, have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next Sunday.